Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. So today I'm joined by Lauren Bevan, who's going to help us think about all things about how the money moves in the NHS. So first up, Lauren, welcome. It's lovely to have you um, with me here today. Oh, thanks, Victoria. Thanks for the invite. Lovely to join you. Lauren, maybe you could start off by explaining why you're so well positioned to talk about how the money moves. You've just got such an interesting and varied background. So tell us a bit about you. Yeah, it's it's not a traditional background, but my training was originally clinical, although this week I have found out that I train in the same place that Pretty Patel. It's not something I necessarily want to admit to. Um, but my um, clinical training led to me uh, working in the NHS in clinical roles for a number of years. And then um, it was in the funding crisis of 2005 where I was sitting around moaning in the staff room that I thought I could do a better job of, of taking the money out of the NHS and dealing with some of the inefficiencies because I could see that they were there, but I felt that they were not being, uh, the decisions weren't being made by people that actually understood front, frontline work. Um, so I decided to retrain and I joined one of the big four accountancy firms and did my um, ACA, which is my Chartered Accountancy Qualification. And that was a real eye opener. I did lots of commercial work during that time, uh, including things like Lehman's and all sorts of other fun things that were happening uh, around about that time. Uh, And then ended up doing lots of weird, wonderful things like mid-staffs and and other things which were predominantly based on whether or not um, it was appropriate to take that level of money out of certain parts of the NHS and the quality impacts of that. And latterly have focused on digital health and data. So I've spent the last 10 or so years working in those areas and have done qualifications in data science and technology and all sorts of other weird and wonderful things. But I've got a, a, a hybrid background, I would say, around operational management, clinical uh, practice and then um, a, a chartered accountancy qualification. So you're one of those very unusual beings that can see things from multiple um, perspectives. And I do think that how the money moves is really poorly understood, not just by entrepreneurs outside of the NHS trying to develop products and services that might be used by the NHS, but even from people inside who might want to buy those products and services. So I wonder, Lauren, whether we could just sort of start really broadly and you explain to a layperson about the internal market. So if we just start not not thinking about digital health specifically, but more broadly about how services get brought, bought and sold within uh, the healthcare system. So money is raised from the general population through means of taxation, which then sits at the Treasury. The Treasury gives that to the Department of Health and Social Care, who then give that on a per head of population to clinical commissioning groups, who then buy on behalf of that population. Now, the money isn't allocated on the same budget per individual. So if you have a particularly deprived population or if you have a population that has certain long term conditions and those are things like cancer, asthma, things that once you're diagnosed with it, things like cardiovascular disease, they don't go away. You're you know, you're asthmatic for life, you're diabetic for life. Those things then attract a higher funding criteria because, you know, you have conditions that you need to pay for people's care. Those clinical commissioning groups then um, split the money into four broad buckets. And these are maternity care. So they look at birth rates and and project those forward. They also look at mental health 
Uh, they'll look at acute care, which is essentially stuff that's provided within a hospital. And then they'll look at community care, which as a rule is provided outside of the hospital. And, and within that sits general practice, uh, dentistry, um, ophthalmology, so um, and optometry, so eye, eye care, really. So those are the four main buckets that you kind of look at and will predict roughly what you think the activity will be over the last 12 months. So the key to it for, for me is all the foibles that I've seen in the NHS versus in commercial terms is the NHS works on a 12 month planning horizon. So the the financial year is, is from the 1st of April at the April Fool's Day through to 31st of March. And that's a really short planning horizon where most other businesses work on a three, five or 10 year basis of, of planning their finances. And the tariff, which is how much money gets paid for a particular procedure, so say a knee replacement or a stent introduction into the heart, that changes every year. So at the moment, we're recording this on the, the 11th of March, um, the new tariffs and the new price list for the NHS comes into effect on the 1st of April. The consultation on what that should be doesn't finish until the 27th of March. So then it's almost impossible to plan with any degree of, of accuracy and foresight if you don't know what your prices are and someone else is setting that price list for you uh, in a hospital. So those are some of the things that make it really difficult to do what I would describe as robust financial management within the NHS. So, okay, we've established it's already, we've established this is very complicated. Now, when I was in the NHS, every year I had to make a 5% cost improvement. So I had to cut my budget somehow by 5%. So it always felt like the money was going down in real terms. There was less and less money available. Is that actually the case or is the money going up in the NHS? So the money is going down in the NHS in real terms. And the way that is being defined is around sort of cost of living. So around 80% of the cost in the NHS sits with staff. Um, and the wages of those staff are defined at a national level. So most people in the NHS are under something called Agenda for Change, which is a national pay scale, which is negotiated by the various unions of the different professional groups and sits at a national level. Uh, locally, there's no recourse to, to change what that pay scale is. And doctors are on a separate pay scale, but similarly negotiated by their unions at a national level. So that those pay increases go up um and 80 percent of your budget is absorbed with that and that means that you can buy fewer nurses doctors porters um now than you could in say 2005 when i was in clinical practice so if you think of it in those terms the money is going down and also cost of drugs is going up um, cost of fuels going up, cost of food is going up. So with all of those things, even if the number that the NHS is getting is going up and up every year, which it is at the moment, then what that buys relatively is is not as much. So even when you're taking those that five percent out or three percent out, um, that then still creates a, a, a scarcity because you know, taking 5% out is fine if everything's costing the same, but you're taking 5% out when, you know, your cost of staff is going up and when the cost of providing food to patients is also going up. 
you know, it, it gets more difficult to achieve. Now, thinking about how the NHS itself buys services. So NHS hospitals, community service will need everything from mattresses through to PPE equipment and so on. Um, and this is where we start to think about digital um, technology. Just talk a bit about procurement and how the NHS typically buys products and services and then maybe just start to emphasise or, or focus on buying digital um, products which are commonly software as a service rather than bits of kit although there's bits of kit in the mix as well. So most procurement exercises start as a, a service specification so that could be something that's quite simple um, so for example there'll be a national service specification for latex gloves for example um, and that will be looking at clinical safety and it'll be someone will have worked out roughly how many the hospital needs and the procurement department will then go to the market and say we need this you know, this many of this specification of gloves and say you've got three weeks to come back with your offer. So they'll offer the market the opportunity to bid for the services and will deal with the, the tenders as they come back in. And it's incumbent on the tenderers to, to say this meets the clinical quality standard. You know, we have the, the necessary um, kite marks in place and all of the other um, things to say that it's it's safe. It's manufactured in line with the standards which sit within the service specification. Um, some of those things are done on national levels. So um, what was NHS supply chain? do that uh, or they can provide local procurement services with a service specification for those procurement teams to go out to the market locally either is acceptable um, and depending on the size of the procurement departments they may choose what they how they choose to procure for digital services however it's slightly different because that service specification is written from either from an outcomes perspective so, for example, we have this problem, we need some digital services to help us fix the problem. And in which case it's left to the, the people who wish to buy the service to say, this is how we would approach this problem. This is our idea. This is how much we think it would cost. And this is how much it would take to run. Um, and also the problem with digital services and when that procurement comes out to tender, the, you're often relying on an in-house team in the buying organisation to run that product or to work with the team to co-develop something together. And that's often something that you're not party to when you put something in. So with gloves, it's a simple transaction. It's a product. Most doctors, nurses or anyone that's using the gloves, it's fairly obvious what you do with a glove and how you dispose it and when you use it. When it's with a particular piece of software and something which you is nuanced and not what we would say is a COTS product, which is stands for commercial off-the-shelf product, something which is then going to be bespoke to uh, a customer need or a patient need, that then becomes a more difficult beast to work out because from a procurement perspective you have to do something which counts as kind of level playing field which means that you're looking at it from a value for money perspective not just in terms of the cost to buy because I could say do you know what Victoria for you I'm going to give it you as for free and I'm going to come in and what I'm going to do this is absolutely great um, but in me doing that I may pass on to you a huge cost of running the service so you have to look at something like whole of life cost. And that's when it becomes really tricky because me selling you something for free 
based on how the tenders evaluated might actually mean that it comes in as the most economically valuable one because what we've done is we've completely ignored the fact that your IT teams are going to need three extra people in order to run this and in order for this to work and be safe then we're going to need all of your clinical quality teams to work with us because we don't have any um, and they're going to have to evaluate it because we don't have any of that um, and actually it hasn't gone through DTAC um, which is the digital technology assessment criteria in this instance so we're going to have to go through all of that rigmarole so I'm sounds great but there is no such thing as a free lunch what I'm doing is loading risk and cost onto you as the buyer and unless that is um, the transaction and the procurement by the teams is developed in such a way that make flushes those things out then there's always a risk when people are buying these things that there's an unintentional risk transfer in there or that um, and we've seen this a little bit with covid that people have come along with a free product for a set period of time and what that's done is created absolute reliance on this product and it's like you know all those you know buy it for seven days free you're totally hooked by the end of it and then they go well that'll be two million pounds please and you think well this is embedded in everything we do now actually it's going to be really difficult for us to transfer over to something else and you end up paying an inflated cost that you would have done much better if you'd have gone to an open market tender but given the time scales and everybody's heads was, was elsewhere we're seeing a lot of these sorts of things come out now where there's reliance which has been baked in by people being given things for free weaving them into the fabric of everything they do and it becomes incredibly difficult to then tease out those um services out of how things are, are working at the hospital or in the the population health economy or whichever layer this has been provided at is that also a risk to a company selling to the nhs that that organization doesn't have the capability or the headspace to, to fully adopt and optimise the use of that technology so it never quite actually works in practice. And that creates a risk both to the person selling or the company selling the technology or licensing it, but also to the trust as well. The thing about technology adoption in the NHS, I always refer to the Professor Greenhalgh's NAS, so the non-adoption and abandonment spread framework. Technology in the NHS is often fit for purpose, but what it isn't is it isn't bespoke. Um, and it's not tweaked to that organisation, to their needs and understanding because people don't have the time to do it. So you under, you, you're in this position where um, vendors come in, they have something which is kind of 80% there, but that last 20% is quite hard yards to cover and needs lots of working groups. It needs lots of shadowing, it needs observation using the solution, it needs working with patient groups all of that stuff which is quite hard to do it requires lots of time lots of energy and enthusiasm but needs people to have the headspace you can't just chuck it in and walk away because there's huge clinical risk with doing that it's about pathways and optimization around the way people are working and because the operational model around how clinical services work in the NHS is not consistent it's unrealistic to expect a drag and drop to work so most of the time when I've seen technology failures in the NHS, they're actually adoption failures. The technology is doing what it says on the tin. What hasn't happened is that close collaborative working on both sides and a commitment to 
you know, time, energy, difficult conversations which are needed in order to make that work and to come together as a partnership. I think that's where most of those things have fallen over. You've obviously got your outliers where someone's promised the earth and delivered nothing, or you've got someone who think they've got the, you know, the, the best software in the world for 20 quid. You know, so you do have those scenarios. But by and large, when both parties have entered into it in good faith, the software vendors have overestimated what an enthusiastic person has told them during the procurement process. And I think one thing to look at if you're selling into the NHS, if you only ever see the same three people in your meetings, you're in danger. And on the other side of things, from a a trust perspective or a um, health economy perspective, you need some pretty good advocates and you need them at every level. You can't just have them at C-suite level. You need to have your medical secretaries, your ward clerks, your porters, um, your you know band five nurses, your newly qualifiers, as well as your medical director, as well as your chief nursing information officer, because those are the people that need to live with that system day in, day out. They're, they'll be the ones sitting like I was doing, you know, 20 years ago, spatting off in the staff room about how crap it is. And they're the people you need on side to help make it better and to give you the feedback that you need in order to make their jobs easier. You touched on those sort of danger signals. And as you were talking, it was occurring to me that another potential danger signal is those annual budget cycles and needing to get rid of money sort of from January onwards towards the end of the financial year. And do you think that's also a danger signal for a company? Because if someone's trying to get rid of some money at the end of the year, license a product for the year, but maybe haven't thought about the costs of implementation, that that's actually maybe a cause for concern about potential failure. Yeah. And let me tell you a story which illustrates that pretty well. So back in the days when I was Deputy Director of Finance and Performance in the NHS, I was in the office uh, in the middle of March, just preparing for for year end and doing all the fun and games that comes with that. And there was a delivery that came and I wasn't expecting a delivery. And the delivery was from a vendor and it was several hundred remote monitoring devices for heart failure that had been bought by the director of finance in that year end clear out. So they sat in the basement. We had no operating model for it. We had no clinical sponsor for it. We had no idea what to do with it. Um, It was coming out of capital expenditure. No one had thought about the depreciation costs of it. And there was no plan to roll it out. No patients had been enrolled in it. It's like what I do in the January sales. I go out going, I will be a size 10 in, you know, in a few months time, this will fit. And and people do the same with shiny things when they have to clear out their budgets because it is use it or lose it. And the, the issue is also if you don't spend it, your budget gets reduced by the corresponding amount next year. So that I think illustrates really well that the sort of absolute madness where you've got a whole system which is chronically underfunded but where the behavioural incentives are to do a random smash and grab at the end of the financial year to buy stuff. And and from that, I learned almost always to have my wish list. So if those things came around again, if that was to happen, then I had essentially all the pages over the Argos catalogue turned over. That I was like, if someone comes to me and says, you've got like Brewster's millions, you know, you've got a week to spend a million pounds, what would you buy? And these things do happen in the NHS. And I knew exactly what I was going to get because I already had plans to do it. I just had things that I could then dust off the shelf and make really good use of public funds because that struck me as almost a never event, like that shouldn't have happened. And yet 
there we were, go, me going, what is this? As they come in with the sack barrows. It's, it's another challenge. Those dollops of money that come from the centre out of the blue, often um, linked to end of year money as well, where trusts are encouraged to bid for some money to do some bit of digital transformation. And But, but maybe what it does is it takes them away from optimising the technologies they've already got in place. So they're always chasing the next thing rather than being able to focus their efforts on really good adoption of the core technologies that they might have already licensed. Yeah, so what, what I'll say is I think that the digital teams within um, the NHS are often subscale, so there just aren't enough people to do the jobs. And the funding, the bid funding requirement forms are not easy things. This isn't something that someone can really dash off in an afternoon without an impact on anybody else, on anything else. This is essentially a project project in and of itself. And these projects do divert attention away from the day job. You could almost have somebody whose job is randomly to sit there and deal with any of these, um, you know, windfall um, types of packages of money that come through because the hoops that you have to jump through are enormous. And I don't think there are even published rates or success rates of these things so you never really know what your odds are so I as a vendor at the moment can judge fairly well how many people I think I'm up against what I think the budget for the project is actually in the NHS they don't have that so it's really hard to make relatively okay in a commercial enterprise a bid no bid decision in the NHS, it's really difficult. And when you feel like you don't have enough money to do what you want to for the organisation you work in, it's hard to say no as well. So you end up with really diligent, hardworking people who work within the NHS feeling that they can't turn down an opportunity to get additional funds for their organisation, working to all hours, filling in forms where they might have a one in a hundred chance of getting what they want. And that money will only stretch them 12 months. So You also end up in this weird perverse incentive where lots of people who work on these projects are on fixed term contracts. So you also then have a retention problem because you're trying to get talent in from various different parts of the commercial sector, from the NHS in in private enterprise, where they are turning down the luxury of a, a full time substantive job to something which is then on six, 12, 18 months, because that's what the funding envelope that comes out from the centre will cover. And that's really difficult because you have to have the passion to be saying, you know, I'm, I'm willing to turn down a bit of job security for the fact that I know that there'll be another 12 month contract at the end of this one and it might be in a different shape. But I'm 90 percent confident that it will be there. So absolutely, it's got distraction. It's got um the odds are stacked against you and you don't often know what they are and you've got this massively bureaucratic process where they're never the same questions you can never say I'll just look at what I did last year because someone will have changed it and actually writing a bid or a proposal in and of itself is a skill isn't it that not everyone has and definitely you don't necessarily have those capabilities within an NHS organisation Lauren you've mentioned capital and revenue a few times And um, I'm going to take us there. I'm going to take us to the challenge of capital versus revenue. Can you just talk to us about that in respect of how digital technologies get bought? 
the way I find it easiest to express is thinking about household budgets, because that's something that most people have and most people can relate to. It's a slightly abstract concept in the NHS. So capital in the NHS is for big, big things, big ticket items. So in household budgets, it would be getting your roof done, getting a new boiler. So those big gluts of money. And then revenue is your day to day cost. So your heating costs, your food bill. And there are things which could sit in either way, depending on how expensive they are. So say a new sofa, if you've gone to Ikea, could sit in revenue. If you've gone to Heels and you're feeling a bit spicy, then it might sit in in capital. So there is some discretion around some of those larger items that sit in the middle. But both of them have limits on them. So there's something called the capital resource limit and something called the revenue resource limit. Now, for reasons best known to the accounting gods, and I can't say that I understand this, I just know that it's the case. In the NHS, you can do a capital to revenue transfer. So you can decide, do you know what? We're not going to get the roof done this year. What I'm going to do is we're going to not shop at Aldi anymore. We're going to shop at Waitrose. So that money is going to go on the food expenditure and we'll deal with the rainwater later. So you can do that capital to revenue transfer. What you can't do is do the other way. So you can't say... The converse, you can't say, look, we'll economise, we'll stop inviting the rugby team round for Saturday drinks and we'll save all that money uh, and we'll put that towards uh, getting a new eco-boiler. You you can't do that. And I don't understand the reasons why, I just know that it's the case. And no one's ever explained it to me, I've been doing this 15 years. So what that means is because the cost of providing services in a hospital for the reasons that I've mentioned in terms of, you know, everybody's cost of living at the moment is going up as well. The cost of providing hospital care will be going up because of food rate increases, because of fuel price rises, because of all those things. Those likelihood of doing a capital to revenue transfer is increasing and the capital costs pay for everything from repairing dilapidated buildings, the new hospitals projects that are going on you know building a new wing um new scanners mri like big bits of expensive multi-million pound equipment but it also pays for internet cabling it also pays for new computers because that's classed as a network asset for for it it's interwoven in a web because desktop computer on its own isn't much use but when you put it into it being part of the hospital network it suddenly becomes you know one thousandth of the estate and it's the estate cost that then pull it into capital and you can also capitalize uh salary costs as well so when i did some hospital building projects my project managers costs sat in capital because they were associated with building a capital asset and the same for some of those digital projects as well. So if you're putting a new electronic patient record system in, they're hugely expensive. That asset cost is, is the second largest cost than buying a hospital itself. It's, it's tens of millions of pounds. And all the project managers that sit around that and the trainers and all those people can have their salaries capitalised. But And I'll go back to this point, if the money is there to do so. And that cost gets unwound every year in something called depreciation. So every asset has what's known as a useful economic life. And again, those are set by the accountancy gods in the NHS. IT is between four and seven years. That's basically what they call the replacement cycle. So they say every four or seven years that asset should be replaced. And most people will laugh because they're probably still dealing with computers that have got Windows 95 on them. And therefore, the the fact that this should have been changed in 2015 is probably comedic to some people. But anyway, that's 
the way that the accounting gods were. So you have to budget for both of those things. You have to do the initial outlay and then account for either, you know, between a quarter and a seventh every year to come off your bottom line as that unwinds its way through. Uh, What happens is the capital budget is the one that gets raided, but it also has to pay for those very visible things which are wrong with the fabric of buildings. There's something called backlog maintenance, and there's really big figures which are created, which are in the billions of pounds, which are essentially, we've got loads of Victorian hospitals. Uh, If you put off having the roof done, then you're also dealing with the roof, the leaks, the timbers, all of those things. So by deferring paying for some of these structural things the actual cost of fixing them will go up and up and up and that's what we're seeing and it's very hard then uh, as a person who works in digital to put a case where essentially you're directly competing against very emotive things that people feel quite strongly about because they see them day to day you will then be saying well I think we should have a new AI system for mammography and someone's like, yeah, but the roof's just fallen down in maternity. We we need to fix that. And that's more pressing. And, and that leads to the digital debt, which sits in the NHS, which is less visible, but something that everybody will say, yeah, it takes me 10 minutes to boot my computer up. Oh, I wish we had single sign on. Um, or I wish we had something that was slightly better. And the connection between both of those things is, is missed because it's this minor irritation that happens every day rather than this massive event that everyone goes, we really need to fix that. So if I'm a startup, I'm a small company, and I've got this really neat application to help patients self-manage a particular condition, and I'm wanting to license it, it's a software as a service, and I'm wanting to license it to an NHS trust, for example, would would that trust be using a revenue budget or a capital budget, or could it be either? It could be either, and it depends on a couple of things. So one is the actual cost. So once it gets, you know, into you know the realms of being expensive so it's it's the sort of sofa category if you're in ikea it can be revenue or capital if you're in the the sort of high end if you're in harrods and it's you know it's quite swish then you're dealing more towards the capital end of things and it also depends on how many years it's for and also on who's using it and it might sound bizarre but sometimes that distinction can be made between things that the community uses so say it might be something that is used by community nurses and nurses within a trust and they might be through separate legal entities so you might be looking at it being co-funded or it might be used by sort of patients themselves and therefore might be able to be funded through something like tariff and and might kind of flow down through um, the national routes as well so there's a lot and and this is the problem it's really complicated and if there was one answer I think it would be much easier for people to go to the finance people particularly digital people who work within the trust and say it's this pot of money the, the more difficult answer is you could do 20p from here 50p from there and that's when it gets difficult because you need all of those people to say yes because it's not just coming from one pot. And that's when you end up with these kind of Frankenstein-y contracts where you might get the initial pilot being paid from a pot over here. And if it goes into full-blown, you know, mode across the trust, then you need to go and find another pot of money. And that might come from the IT department doing the infrastructure costs 
and then the training money might come from the training budget uh, and then you might get something from the CPD budget for that professional group that it's targeting or the budget for the service. And any of those things or any permutation of those things is, an, is a valid way of funding it. But the more funding streams you're reliant on, the riskier it is that if one of those gets pulled, your project then becomes non-viable. And, and just thinking, um, building on, you know, this sort of example if you like of a startup so if you're responding to a tender then you have like a set timeline and and a formal process but often that startup is actually going out and doing business development trying to build the case build the relationships and having worked in industry for a while myself my experience is that's at least 18 months but can be significantly longer now you're in industry what what's your sense of what's a realistic sales cycle for that startup I would say it's 18 to 24 months and I think that the difficulty is is identifying those people that are willing to be the innovators so most people are really happy in the NHS around being second or third off the blocks that they don't necessarily want to take the risk around the first mover because that's where all the pain is felt and going back to needing to dedicate lots of time to it that's something that they feel that they're not able to commit to so I think the initial sales cycle around 18 to 24 months is is massive but the second one should come quite soon after that because once you've got that credential and once you have an NHS credential the second one becomes a lot easier to get. Okay, so you're getting us on a more positive note now, and I feel like we've been fairly doom-laden so far. So I just wonder um, what advice you would give to a small company who's got a a product that could really make a positive difference to patients. It might help the workflow of a clinical process, add real benefit to clinicians. What sorts of things should they be thinking about and being aware of um, if the NHS is their customer? Absolutely. So I think there's one thing which is, being realistic about how and where the savings are made. So one of the mistakes that I've seen made before is thinking that if you can save 10 minutes in a nurse's day every day, that that then adds up to being able to take X number of you know, nurses out and the budget for that. Whereas realistically, what we know is the NHS is run on goodwill. So if you save 10 minutes of, of that nurse's day, it just means that they get to go home an hour and a half after their shift ends rather than two hours after their shift ends. Um, so I think denominating your savings in the way that they happen and tr- not necessarily monetizing that um, because it makes, I think, somehow seem less credible because it shows the lack of understanding about the way that the operational reality of the NHS is. So if you save hours or minutes, show it in that um i think talk in in vignettes talk about stories so it's really hard for people who have very busy days and do a lot of context switching to understand the impact that you might be able to bring to people so tell us tell it in a story and tell that from lots of different perspectives so that story could be from a service manager who's trying to to manage a queue of patients how does that make that person's job easier from a clinician's perspective and also from a patient's perspective so all of those things are incredibly powerful in saying that you understand the potential benefit that your solution can have and the third thing I would say is is 
going back to that increasing your odds of success around being honest about what you need from the trust so you might think well actually we'll say it's quite light touch from them I think then you're shooting yourself in the foot because the chances that you'll have a successful implementation have, have gone down because you haven't been honest about it. And going back to me saying, you know, when people say, oh, this, is, this will save your trust millions, it gets my spider senses going that you hey, I haven't quite understood how this works. And the same with those implementation timelines. I would find it far more credible if someone came to me and said that this is great. We think, you know, it will save... 20 minutes per patient you know per episode and also we think that but what we're going to need from you is some time with your specialist nursing we'll need some time with your medical staff and with your service manager to really actually bespoke and here are the areas that we would bespoke this is the core element of it which you know we find works well in most instances and here are the areas where it's a bit more variable and we'll need to work with you to make something that's happy People will buy into it. They'll understand it. They'll be stakeholders and they'll have a part in it. And they'll be then bought into the success of that because they will feel like that's their decision. Even if they look at it and go, you know what, that's fine. That's ready to go. That's an active participation that they have had in it rather than a passive. Here it is over the fence. You now have to go and make this work because that's when the the grumbling in the staff room happens so we know that we're moving to more integrated systems across regions which i think is broadly seen as a positive move what seeds of hope do you have or what thing do you think would make the most difference if we were really improving the digital health ecosystem from a money point of view so again fan of three things so the three things for me would be around those um place-based areas having consistent standards in place so that um, solutions can plug into different areas and therefore if they're trialled and successful in one area it becomes a lot easier from a technological perspective for those things to more seamlessly transfer which will just mean that the rollouts become a lot faster so that you've got less disparity around people having access and not having access around a certain patch so I think that's the first thing from a technical perspective from a I guess from a business case and funding perspective so NHS uh, X now NHS England Transformation Directorate did the what good looks like and who pays for what um, back in the summer and I think that there is a move to having larger budgets and larger pooled funds for those areas so that those uh, business cases should be fewer and far between um, for larger pots of money I think if those are multi-year and that there is a really clear line of sight around what happens when those funding pots finish I think that will help um, people to plan over a more realistic horizon very few digital transformations are achieved in the 12 month time frame and even fewer have financial um, payback in that period it tends to be around about five years so shifting where we think people should be paying stuff back over will encourage more long-termism in decisions funding and that talent retention point that I mentioned um, and the final part I think it's about uh learning so the the nhs learning from each other so we've had the the blueprints and the global digital exemplars and all of these other things which is aimed to spread and reduce pilotitis around the nhs i think i don't think we've quite got that right still 
And I can't quite figure out if that's because people are so busy that they can't lift their heads up for long enough to be able to absorb the lessons that other people have have hard won um, elsewhere or whether or not there's a feeling that they're not applicable. But I think thinking about ways of, of helping uncover the booby traps and to make sure that the system is a learning system and that includes vendors and the whole ecosystem because I think that nobody wants cowboys in the system. It's all public money. So we all need to work together around how we pull all of those learnings in and, and become it becomes less about commercial advantage or anything like that. And it becomes a lot more collaborative to make sure that companies aren't able to make huge amounts of money by selling that learning, that the NHS does a better job of, of cross-pollinating that and not relying on people to, to take the PowerPoint presentation from one place to the next. Laura, what a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you have your own podcast, so before we finish, just um, tell the listener a bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I have a podcast with, with two friends, uh, Lee and Andy, so it's called Feeling Techish, and it covers a, a myriad of, of different technological uh, areas, and we cover a different topic each week um, we've gone on a slight hiatus at the moment because I have had a baby um, but we're looking to do the next season quite soon so that is found on all good places where you get your podcasts brilliant thank you Lauren Uh, really appreciate your time thank you for listening to the digital ecology podcast please like subscribe and review via the usual channels my book towards the digital health ecology is available via amazon And you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.